Welcome. You're listening to CrossvilleRevolution.com. I want you to imagine for a moment with me that it's the middle of the summer, a crazy hot day. Uh, let's say global warming is in full effect. It's 9.30 service. You're heading to church. Your car breaks down. Your cell phone's not working. And you're about three or four miles out from the church, and you decide to just go ahead and walk to church in 100-degree weather. You get here, and you're sweating, and you're burning up, and you come find me, and you say, Pastor Josh, I'm so thirsty, I'm about to die. I'm burning up. I need something to drink. And I looked at you and said, okay, I've got two options for you. Option A, I've got a bottle of water that is purified drinking water that has not been opened yet. Or option B, I've got a pitcher of water that came from our industrial sink in the back of the church that we fill the mop bucket up with and we clean all the youth up with every uh, Wednesday night that have mayonnaise all over them and everything else. The spigot is a little rusty, but it's still water. Everybody in here would say, give me the bottle of water. Give me the bottle of water. I don't want no nasty mop bucket water, right? Well, today we're in week number 10 of our series in the book of Acts, and uh, we are going to finish off chapter 6, and then we're going to be going through the entirety of chapter 7. And today we have 66 verses of Scripture to read through. Now, that may sound kind of daunting to you, but I want to encourage you this weekend. Because you see, Scripture is purified drinking water that quenches our thirst spiritually, where sermons tend to be more like the tap water from the mop bucket sink. The reason tap water or the reason sermons are like that is there's water in there, but it's coming from a rusty faucet named Josh Cardwell. Does that make sense to everybody? And so a half or two-thirds of our time today is going to be spent reading Scripture, but I'm encouraged by that because Scripture is what cuts through bone and marrow, judges the attitudes of life. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Okay, so we are going to fulfill what Paul said in 1 Timothy when he said, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture today. We're going to start in Acts chapter 6, right where we picked up Uh, uh, pick up right where we left off last week in verse 8. Just a review, last week we talked about church governance. We took a look at the first deacons uh, that were appointed in the early church, and now we're going to see one of those deacons, Stephen, highlighted today. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, you're going to notice some parallels to the story of Jesus. Some men to say, Uh, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. 
They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against his, this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We're introduced to two characters at the beginning of the passages that we're going to look at today. Number one, one that we'd recognize from last week, the first deacon that was named in Acts chapter 6 in those early verses, Stephen. He's a servant leader in the early church. But the second is not a singular person. It's a group of people that the scripture calls the synagogue of freedmen. The synagogue of freedmen was made up of former slaves who had purchased their freedom or had been set free from their slavery. If you read the Jerusalem Talmud, which is a historical document, you'll see that in the region that this takes place, there were roughly 480 different synagogues. A synagogue was kind of like a church. Like Jews was the denomination, the synagogues were the churches, so to speak. And so at every synagogue, you had pretty much very similar people that made up that synagogue, like-minded people for whatever reason. At this synagogue, the synagogue of freedmen, what connected the people was where they were originally from, the different regions that are mentioned here in Scripture. They were all slaves that had probably been taken captive by Pompeii, and at some point they bought their freedom or they were set free, but they were all from these different regions, and that's why they were alike. Now, in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we see that a question is asked of Stephen, who has been accused of blasphemy uh, by this group of Hellenistic Jews known as the synagogue of freedmen, no one by name, but the synagogue of freedmen. Listen to what it says in Acts 7.1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Now notice, as we launch into the longest sermon in the New Testament, Stephen's first sermon and by the way, his last sermon, that Stephen is not really looking for an open door to share the gospel. Stephen is just looking for a little crack in the window because he's getting ready to do a summary of some of the most popular Old Testament stories and then lay the gospel down to these Hellenistic Jews. Stephen, of course, if you didn't know this, is the first martyr in the church. A martyr is someone that is killed for their faith. And so as this is Stephen's first sermon on record, it's also his last sermon on record, and Stephen is preaching his funeral, so to speak. You guys have heard me say before that I pray God allows me to stay in Crossville to the day I die. Like I've asked God, please let me uh, preach my own funeral at Crossville Memorial, then I'll jump in the casket, y'all can close the lid and put me in the ground. You know what I'm saying? Well, Stephen is literally preaching his own funeral here. So let's memorialize Stephen as we really get into the bulk of this scripture. And he gives an Old Testament defense of the New Testament Jesus, so to speak. He starts in verse 2 of chapter 7. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. 
Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So he deals with Abraham first. Now he moves into talking about Joseph in the Old Testament. I used to think Joseph was only Jesus' earthly father. When I first started going to church, they would talk about Joseph. And I'm like, Joseph wasn't in the Old Testament. Joseph was Jesus' earthly dad. But there's actually two Josephs. There's one in the Old Testament if you don't know the Bible, okay? It says this in verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Now he starts to talk about Moses. Again, he's been accused of blasphemy specifically against Moses. So the majority of his sermon is going to deal with Moses. Listen to what he says. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. Hey, this is pure water, y'all. This is good stuff, okay? This is not uh, the coming out of a rusty faucet. This is the word of God. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. Just listen to the parallel language as it pertains to Jesus. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Listen to that. Moses thought that his own people would realize God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. You see the parallels of Jesus here? There's a reason why Stephen is saying this to them and going over these Old Testament stories. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, 
Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses heard this. He fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rapham, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Now he starts to reference David and Solomon. Y'all still with me? Say amen. I'm going to drink this pitcher of water. This is a lot of scripture, isn't it? So, After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen is referencing these Old Testament stories. I believe, number one, to communicate to the Hellenistic Jews, I know the Old Testament stories very well. I know the Pentateuch just like you guys do. I think they're awesome just like you guys do. But he's also communicating to them, you guys are just like the people in these Old Testament stories that completely missed who their deliverer was supposed to be. You guys are so caught up in your traditions that you've missed the most important things about the Old Testament. Specifically, you've missed what the entire Old Testament was about and who the entire Old Testament was about, and that is Jesus. What he's teaching these Jews is, 
and he's referencing these Old Testament stories is he's telling them Jesus is the one who has come to save his people from famine, so to speak. Jesus is the one who came to save his people from slavery and set the captives free. Jesus is the one who is the good shepherd, not David, like a lot of you guys think. It's all about Jesus. You guys know the scriptures really well, specifically the Old Testament, but you don't know Jesus, so you don't know what the scriptures are all about. And what he's trying to get across to them is it's all led up to this man named Jesus. Now, Stephen, after he quotes all this scripture, he's very versed in scripture, then goes into his loving, emotional, caring altar call, starting in verse 51. Listen to what he says. You stiff-necked people. It's the way you went over a crowd, man, I'm telling you. What's he saying? You ever tried to walk a dog with a stiff neck? We've got a little 20-pound terrier, and when we walk her, we cannot put a collar around her neck because all she does the whole time is chokes herself to death. (laughs) Stiff-necked. So we have to put a harness on her to be able to walk her because she won't be led. You can't correct her in any way without hurting her, right? And so what Stephen is saying is he's looking at them and he's making no bones about it. He's like, you guys are stiff-necked. You won't be led by anybody. You won't even allow the scriptures or God himself to lead you guys or correct you guys. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. What an insult to Jews at the time. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Thank God for preachers like Stephen. Thank God for preachers like Stephen who is willing to call out people that are wrong in what they believe. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Sometimes, especially when it comes to the gospel, especially when it comes to people's salvation, um, you have to throw tact out the window. And so Stephen here in this instance is not necessarily trying to be tactful. He's trying to make sure he's clear and that there is no room for interpretation with these Hellenistic Jews that are arguing with him. He's making sure that they know what he's saying You guys are completely lost. You need Jesus or you're going to bust hell wide open because you've missed the whole point. You know, sometimes, just a little lesson from this, when you come to church or you go to a small group, you're not supposed to walk away every single time encouraged and uplifted and feeling great about yourself and great about the world. God does send conviction God does send correction, and God does send accountability. 
And I'm not saying every single weekend we need to beat people over the head with a Bible, but I'm just going to tell you, if you're showing up to church every single weekend and every time you walk away, you feel like you're on cloud nine, something is wrong. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Because sometimes you're going to get it wrong and God's going to call you out on it or he's going to have someone else call you out on it. I'm blown away by some of, and I'm not judgmental, this is just true, some of the most popular preachers in America today and speakers in America today can take a black and white issue from Scripture that's very clear in Scripture. This is where the Bible stands. And when they preach on that subject or that passage, people that fall on one side of that issue walk out of the church thinking to themselves, well, that pastor agrees with me and I'm right biblically. But people that fall on a completely different opposite side of that very black and white issue scripturally walk out of church thinking to themselves, guess what? Well, he agrees with me and I'm right biblically. Sometimes, sometimes, some of us are completely wrong. Thank God for Stephen who leaves no room for interpretation. He's very clear. He's letting his yes be yes, so to speak, and his no be no. I was uh, eating pizza with my wife last week and ran out of mine, and she had some left over, and she looked at me, and she said, hey, do you want a piece of my pizza? No! It had pineapple on it. Like, what's wrong with you? No room for interpretation. If you like pineapple on pizza, we're praying you get saved, y'all. I'm just telling you, like, you need Jesus, okay? Lord, I pray for these heathens. Like, I don't know. I'm just kidding, okay? Don't email me. I'm just joking. Your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, in verse 54, things turn as we look at our last six verses of Scripture. Things go from talking to physical. Watch what happens. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, there's that phrase again, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is getting ready to be killed for his faith. And notice, in the greatest trial he's ever been through in his life, Stephen is still literally completely focused on his Savior. You notice that? Completely focused on Jesus. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is a messianic psalm that Stephen is quoting. Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus quoted the same thing in Matthew 26, verses 63 through 66. They recognize this scripture and this messianic psalm. They know that this was something that Jesus also quoted. Again, parallels to Jesus' death, which leads them to do what they're doing in the next verse. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Quotes the psalm in verse 57. At this, they covered their ears. They didn't want to hear truth. They didn't want to hear scripture. They didn't want to hear messianic psalms. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. How many of y'all know what, who Saul is in this passage? Okay, Saul becomes Paul. 
one of the greatest Christians in the New Testament, if not the greatest, other than Jesus, right? Um, This is the first time we're introduced to this man named Saul who will become Paul. Uh, Interesting to note that Saul was from a place called Tarsus. Tarsus was located in one of those regions that was mentioned here. So this most likely, the synagogue of free men, was actually the synagogue that Paul would go to. Paul, Saul, whatever you want to call him, he may have been the one that instigates this entire thing with Stephen. He holds the coats while they were stoning him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Notice the parallels of Jesus, same thing. Falsely accused of blasphemy. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Uh, He looks at God and says, or says to God, forgive them, they don't know what they do. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It's interesting to note that when you read about Stephen, that the reality of following Jesus is, yeah, God will always give you a way out with the temptations in your life, But when it comes to the trials and the tribulations in your life, many times God doesn't offer you a way out. Instead, what he will offer you is the courage and the boldness to be able to make it through the trials that you face. Commentators have written on Stephen. Commentators have written on this synagogue of freed men. And one thing seems to be common in almost every single commentary that there is, is that there are major differences between the attributes that Stephen possesses versus the attributes that these freed men possess. It's been noted that clearly this is one of the first times in the early church that we see the action of what the scripture refers to as spiritual wolves that are seeking to destroy Christians and destroy the church. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said this. This is a scripture that's pretty terrifying. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, when I hear this passage of scripture, every single time I hear a preacher preach on this, I have an image that pops into my head. And the image is this, if you guys could put it up for me. Wild E. Coyote. I have no idea. Y'all know who that is? Looney Tunes, Wild E. Coyote. For some reason, my mind, because that's like the best example in my mind of a wolf or a coyote or, well, I know it's not a wolf technically, you know, whatever. But uh, like dressing up like a sheep. Sometimes he dresses up like a sheep dog in order to go in and try to steal the sheep so he can eat them, Right? And that's comical, and that's funny. But what Jesus is saying is very serious. Wouldn't it be easy if if wolves outwardly in the church and spiritually were easy to identify? But they're not. Jesus says they know how to camouflage themselves very well. They know how to look like everybody else, but make no mistake about it, they're looking to destroy you, destroy your family, destroy your marriage, destroy your life. Wouldn't it be easy if a wolf in a church looked like this? We've got one. This is a prophet 
Donovan that's coming out. And, uh, you know, he's, he's well, like, wouldn't that be simple, y'all? If a wolf walked into church like this and they're wearing the shirt that says, bah, I'm a sheep, you know what I'm saying? But you look at him and go, you ain't a sheep? What are you talking about? That is clearly, oh, can you see through that thing, man? I don't know. So that is clearly a wolf. I mean, look, look, he's got the shirt on underneath. He, he's a student leader, man. We got to have a talk, Pastor Brandon. You know what I'm saying? You got some wolves in there. Wouldn't that be great if it were that simple to identify? Thank you, Prophet D. Okay, everybody give Prophet D a hand, right? <laughs> Don't fall. It's not that easy, though. Because they know how to hide. They know how to blend in. In Romans chapter 16, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. These freedmen were teaching something completely contrary to the gospel. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And, and listen to this. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I want to look at four differences, and I've got a chart for you. Y'all love my charts? Amen, y'all. Come on, man. Give it up for some charts, you know. I do that so you can take a picture with your phone, and you don't have to take a bunch of notes. Just snap a picture when it's over, and I hang on to it. But I want to look at four of the major differences between Stephen and the freedmen, these wolves that are seeking to destroy the church. And my prayer as we look at these is it could be a litmus test for each of us individually to make sure that we ourselves are not struggling with some wolf-like tendency, so to speak. So let's take a look at them. Number one, Stephen, the Scripture tells us Four different times in the scripture we read, four different instances, it says that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Stephen has yielded his life to the Holy Spirit's control to be able to do whatever the Holy Spirit wanted to do with him. I would surmise to you or, 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 or summarize to you, I don't know if I said that word right, summarize to you that really the quality that Stephen possessed that was the greatest quality was he was full of humility to be able to yield himself to the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe when we read about Stephen in this short chapter and a half, we find a man whose number one quality is he's humble. We know that Last week, we talked about how they were looking for deacons, and deacons translated means willing to serve tables. So Stephen was willing to run a food pantry and work with widows. He just wanted to serve in any capacity. He didn't have to be the preacher. He didn't have to sing the solo. He's willing to do whatever it took in order to serve the church, which shows his humility. In this passage, it says that the, the freedmen could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave Stephen, I've been doing a deep dive in the book of Proverbs this month. And in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, a scripture caught my eye that says, Humility is the fear of the Lord. And it connected in my brain 
Back to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The reason I believe that Stephen had the wisdom that they couldn't stand against was directly connected to the humility and the humbleness that Stephen possessed. We've learned this in the church that, you know, people can come to Rev Church and they can have doctorates in theology and everything else, but if they have no humility, they can't learn anything. They can't be used in the church. It's amazing how book knowledge does not equal effectiveness. Amen, Rev Church? You know what equals effectiveness? Humility. You want to know why? Stephen, God allowed him to do signs and wonders and be used in this massive way and gave him power and gave him wisdom is because he was humble enough to yield himself to the power of the Holy Spirit. Chuck Swindoll would say it like this, in faith, Stephen submitted himself to the direction of the Holy Spirit and worked to serve his church. This is exactly the kind of faithful Christian God loves to use to do big things. Stephen took his faith seriously, and he yielded to the Holy Spirit's control. That's what it means to be full in this way. Consequently, he was able to perform supernatural feats, wonders, and signs. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. The freedmen, the synagogue of freedmen, they were full of one thing, venom, and they were full of pride. Listen to me. The number one quality I believe Scripture gives us for spiritual wolves that will seek to destroy you, destroy your family, destroy your marriage, and destroy your life is pride. In other words, a know-it-all attitude. In other words, absolutely zero humility. What I've learned in 15 years of full-time ministry, it may be 16 now, I can't keep up, nine years of being a senior pastor is that a quality of a wolf is always that they will receive absolutely no spiritual authority in their lives whatsoever. They won't allow anyone to have authority over their lives spiritually, whether it's a small group leader, an elder, a pastor, or even the scripture itself. Jesus himself has no authority over their lives because after all, they know everything in their pridefulness. If the Bible says something one time, do you guys think the Bible, like God really means it? Just say amen. Amen. If the Bible says, yeah, that was weak. Okay. If the Bible says something twice, do you think that God really means it? Say amen. That's a little better. Now, let's, let's really like, like, let's feel it today, okay? I know there's a lot of scripture. It's all good, okay? Uh, if the Bible says something three times clearly in the exact same way, do you think that God really means it? Yeah. Amen. Listen to Proverbs 3.24. It's also found in 1 Peter. It's also found in the book of James. Old and New Testament, okay? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You're not being used by God? You want to be used by God? You don't understand why God wouldn't use someone as awesome as you? That's the problem. Is everybody with me? 
You need to check your humility and check your pride. Oh, I'm humble. (laughs) Anyone that says, I don't struggle with pride, number one red flag. Yeah, you do. Because you just said that. You just said that. You absolutely struggle with pride if you say, oh, I'm I'm so humble. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, because you just said that. You're not. Anyway, I got to move on, okay? I got three more of these. Stephen, number two quality, he defends truth. He defends truth. He uses scripture. He uses the gospel straight up. No human reasoning, no human wisdom. Stephen tells the truth through this whole process. He has integrity. Uh, The fruit of the Spirit remains intact with Stephen. He comes at them strong, but he doesn't insult them personally. He's loving them. He's trying to be gentle in a way. Stephen defends truth, and clearly Stephen knows Scripture well, and this is so important because he's fulfilling 1 Peter chapter 3 that says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so Stephen has Scripture hidden in his heart. He's got his offensive weapon ready to use on the wolves that will come against him in his life. If you were to go on a camping trip with your family and your spouse, uh, like any good cross villain, uh, you would most likely take a couple of shotguns with you, a couple of handguns with you. Amen, Rev Church? Because you'd want to make sure you were ready to defend yourself against anything that came your way, and shotguns or handguns are awesome. Amen, Rev Church? Like, I'll say that in CrossFit. I don't think I could say that in Nashville, but I'll say it here. We love guns here. Amen, y'all. And so invest in guns, not the market right now. Amen. They're going to go up in value. We're not too sure about this S&P stuff. No, I'm just joking. But uh, you would take them with you, right, along with your tent and everything else. And if in the middle of the night you woke up, opened up your tent, and you saw a wolf frothing at the mouth, rabid, ready to destroy and consume your family and your spouse, what would you do? You take those guns and you wouldn't shoot it once. You'd shoot it five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. You'd make sure that sucker was dead. You'd be up the rest of the night, gun in hand and loaded, ready just in case there was others that were with that wolf. Your offensive weapon would be ready, loaded, and ready to go. The offensive weapon we have against spiritual wolves is the word of God. It is truth. It's exactly what Stephen uses. You got to know scripture. One day, someone is going to come find you, and you got to be real careful because you're in, in your naivety, naivete, naivete, how do you say it? Is it different for like Yankees and Southerners? Because you don't know scripture, okay? With smooth talk, they're going to deceive you. And before you know it, your family will be destroyed, your marriage will be destroyed, you'll look up and your life will be destroyed because you'll be led astray, thrown about with waves of doctrine that don't make any sense because you don't know theology and you don't know the Scripture. You better hide truth in your heart. Hide truth in your heart. Just like, just like Stephen did. I was watching this week, and I don't want to get political is everybody still with me? Say amen. But like I was watching this week, Elon Musk bought Twitter. And people on both sides of the aisle are melting down. I mean, some of y'all think that Elon Musk, 
he may be the Antichrist. I don't know, because you think for some reason him buying Twitter is going to make our lives better and everything's going to be great. And so you keep depending on a billionaire in America to do that for you, okay? And anything out of Washington to save you and help your life, because I've never known anybody that, that helps, okay? But then on the other side, there were people freaking out. They're like, free speech, oh no. Oh, and, and you keep hearing truth, truth, truth. Washington, literally this week, created something called, I'm not kidding, y'all, the Ministry of Truth. That is going to change with every single administration that comes in. What's truth? The world ain't got a clue what truth is. So you better know, because it's going to change every four to eight years. You better know. The world doesn't know Jesus. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And if you don't know him, man, you're going to be thrown around like crazy in this world. This will be okay one year. The next year, it's not okay. This is good. This is bad. Blah, 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 blah. You better know truth. The freedmen, on the other hand, while Stephen defends truth, the freedmen created lies. Hey, when wolves are in a fight, they go for blood. They want to kill, y'all. You better understand that. They'll lie. They'll cheat. They'll steal. Wolves will manipulate and control by any means necessary. Notice one of the tactics of the wolves, and it's a tactic that is used today. The wolves discredit leadership of the church. Stephen being a deacon, let's discredit the leadership, which will discredit their ministry, which in turn will discredit the message of the gospel. Be very careful with wolves. Number three, Stephen is changed on the inside. It's clear that he's been born again. I gotta hurry. He's been born again. The Holy Spirit, he's full of the Holy Spirit again three different times. I told you guys at the beginning of this series, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because as a result of him being filled with the Holy Spirit and born again, he's willing to die for his faith. But the freedmen had only been changed on the outside. Stephen insults them with one of the greatest insults that a Jew could ever have. When he looks at them and he says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, you're circumcised on the outside, but you're not changed on the inside. You only know the scripture, but you don't know what it's about. Wolves, y'all, can appear very spiritual on the outside. But inside, I'm going to say it again, they want to destroy your family, destroy your marriage, and destroy your life. Lastly, Stephen stands alone, but he's not alone. Because four different times, once again, it tells us he's full of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Stephen, standing alone with only the power of the Holy Spirit, was greater than having the power of the entire world with him in this moment. And you need to know, Rev Church, if you're here this weekend and you're going through a trial and you feel like you can't make it, you feel like you're alone, you feel like you have no one, if you know Jesus and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you have more power than you could ever get in this world. You can make it through in Jesus' name. Amen, Rev Church? The freedmen, on the other hand, they're a pack of wolves. They're a pack. And you need to understand this because 
wolves are always recruiting for their pack. They're always trying to get more people. Yes, there will be an alpha wolf, but wolves never will stand up by themselves. It's always in a group. And the bigger they can make their group, the more powerful they think they are. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So be very careful with spiritual wolves. It's interesting, I'll close with this, that these freedmen, that's a crazy name, freedmen. They're actually not free at all, right? These freedmen, they thought that they were going to kill the church by killing Stephen. But what we're going to find out next week as we continue into chapter 8, and this is really two parts, we're going to find out that the scripture that God said, God will use all things for good for those that are called according to his purpose, is so true. Because God is actually using the actions of these wolves, this synagogue of freed men, to kick phase two of the Great Commission in action in his church. And we'll find out more about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. You are awesome. You are mighty. Thank you so much for scripture, pure water that fills our soul, God. Uh, God, I, I thank you for a church that devotes itself to the reading of public scripture, the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Uh, God, uh, we just want to do your word justice. And so, Lord, I, I pray for our church that, that you give us the strength and the boldness to be obedient to what it is you've called us to do. I pray for your people that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would have a radical obedience to the Holy Spirit so that they will have that strength to do what it is you've called them, us to do. God, I pray you protect us. Give us a fire to know truth so that we can stand against the wolves. I pray for the husbands that are under the sound of my voice, God. I had a strong impression this week to pray for the husbands, that the excuses about them not being able to protect their home spiritually, oh, my wife's more spiritual, she reads more scripture, she prays more, that those would go out the window with the men that are in this room that they would step up, they would suck it up, and accept the role as the spiritual leader and protector of their home, that they would know truth, that they would serve their family, serve at their church, seek to glorify God every single day, 24-7 with their lives, and that they would have their offensive weapons ready when the enemy comes like a flood, trying to destroy their families, their marriages, and destroy their lives. I pray for the young people, God, that you raise up a generation that knows how to fight these spiritual battles. And I pray for an anointing that could come only from you so that they can do things that would never be possible on their own. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Thank you for listening to Crossville Revolution dot com.